But some of these football players are like 6'6", 265 pounds, but they're so much muscle in there. But if you put him on a scale, he would measure his BMI as being obese a lot of the time. That's an example where that's not a useful measure for somebody who is way adequately muscled and a really tall person. The opposite can be true. You can put a woman who's thin on a scale, her BMI is 19, everything looks good. Your conventional doctor would say no issues. And then you do a body composition and you see really low muscle mass or high fat mass. If you suffer from bloating of any kind, ever feel like food is quote stuck, and are eating as clean as possible, but still experience GI issues, this is the episode for you. I have Mary Party back for a second time discussing all things gut, bloating, eating disorders, bone density, and so much more. There's a lot we cover in this episode, including what normal weight obesity is and a variety of methods to help figure out and fix the root cause of your issues. So I want to give you all hope. This is not an all doom and gloom episode, but actually a quite insightful one full of hope to help you combat and overcome your gut issues so you can start living your best life. You're listening to the Digest This Podcast, and I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. Let's get right into the episode. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me again. I'm excited. Yeah. So last time you were on, it did so well. I think it was actually one of the top listened to podcasts of uh, 2023, which is incredible. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen uh, to that episode. So we decided to bring you back to talk all of the things, but I want to start off the podcast with some rapid fire yes or no questions. So you can only answer yes or no. You ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Is BMI and weight accurate indicators of health? No. Is bloating only caused by the foods we eat? No. Is heart disease more prevalent in women than men? No. Can supplements truly help improve someone's health? Potentially, no. My answer is no if I have to say one or the other. (laughs) Okay, okay. I think that depends on other factors too. So many, yeah. Yes, really tough for that one. I'm like, I want to keep going. (laughs) Yeah, all right. Okay, so last one. Can someone turn their health around even after the age of 60? Yes. Okay. So these are just some some precursors here of what we're going to talk about today. And so stay tuned till the very end. If you guys haven't heard, I just came out with a strawberry flavor to add to my Bethany's Pantry protein powder line. This newest flavor delivers such a robust strawberry flavor without any natural flavorings or artificial sweeteners. And the natural pink color is created by using 100% pure beet and strawberry powder. And I don't know if you guys knew this, but it's actually not required by law that you don't have to list sub-ingredients in a single ingredient. So many freeze-dried and dehydrated fruit powders actually contain 
contain a carrier such as maltodextrin or dextrose, which are sugars. And companies add this ingredient to prevent clumping of the powder and keep it, quote, free flowing. But for me, I know better and I seek out only the best, purest form of ingredients to add to my Bethany's Pantry products, including our digestive support strawberry flavor. I'm reading through reviews right now and Gina E gave it five stars and wrote, this is the best protein powder I have ever tasted. I will definitely be buying again. Thank you. And Nancy S wrote, Strawberry is the best flavor of all three flavors. And she also rated and reviewed and gave it five stars. And Jennifer C wrote, only protein powder that doesn't bother my stomach. I can't live without it. So you can see my protein powder is loved and appreciated by so many. And it's vegan, paleo, keto-friendly, as well as suitable for those on a candida or diabetic lifestyle. It's also glyphosate-free and contains no gluten, grains, or lectins. Yes, that's right, you guys. We actually remove the lectins from the peas, which is why countless customers message me on Instagram saying after trying other pea protein powders, this is the only one they can actually digest without any issues. You see, it's not only the taste, but the purity and the way we process it without any chemicals that makes it so special and different. So if you're ready to start your journey to a healthier and happier gut and ultimately happier life, head on over to newsest-usa.com slash Bethany's Pantry to grab a tub of the strawberry protein and check out all of the other Bethany's Pantry gut-friendly goodies. Again, that's N-U-Z-E-S-T-U-S-A.com slash Bethany's Pantry to see my entire line of products. You guys are going to love them and your gut will too. Newsest-USA.com slash Bethany's Pantry. I get asked all the time on my Instagram if you can take too much sodium, if that's like even a thing. And well, before I tell you the link between low sodium levels and stress, I also want to tell you that the reason I went into a coma back in 2018 was due to low sodium levels. In fact, when they checked my sodium levels in the emergency room, they were off the charts low. And this is just one reason I take electrolytes every single day. And yes, I even salt my smoothies and every single meal. But low sodium levels and electrolytes can also cause a number of other factors, including stress. Cortisol is a hormone released during times of stress that affects nearly every process, including our mental state in the body. Now, high cortisol, in fact, has been linked to depression, fatigue, and stress in both men and women. So where does sodium come in? When someone is sodium deficient, their cortisol levels go way up. Now, that's bad news for your mood. In addition, sodium deficiency triggers your adrenal cortex to start pumping out aldosterone. Now, aldosterone tells your kidneys to retain sodium. This is a useful survival mechanism but it's not good for long-term well-being and high aldosterone 
not only raises blood pressure, but it's also been linked to clinical depression. This again is just one reason why we all need to make sure our sodium levels are at their peak. The confusion of too much sodium in the body comes from the type of sodium. Refined iodized salt is what we should be staying away from. Now, if you really want to boost your mood in the right direction, listen to this, you guys. Studies suggest that magnesium status is closely linked to anxiety. And when someone is nervous, they excrete more magnesium in their urine, causing magnesium levels to drop. Additionally, on a population level, dietary magnesium intake is negatively correlated with anxiety. And clinical data also indicates that magnesium supplementation can have a relaxative effect. Along with anxiety, magnesium supplementation may also reduce depressive symptoms. Element provides not only sodium and magnesium, but also potassium, which is helpful in blood sugar regulation, kidney health, and bone density. And the exact ratio element puts in each of their electrolyte packs is science-backed, resulting in the exact amount we need. Adding electrolytes into your diet is a great way to replenish and rebalance your body, mind, and mood. However, most electrolyte drink mixes contain added gums, sugars, colors, and even added oils, among many other unnecessary ingredients. I am really picky about what goes into my body, so that's why I choose Element's Raw Unflavored Electrolyte Mix. Element's unflavored version contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of salt, magnesium, and potassium. That's it. Just those three simple ingredients are in their raw, unflavored packs. Sometimes I like adding a squeeze of grapefruit or lemon for a burst of flavor or simply just drink plain. And you can add more or less water depending on your personal taste preference. So whether you just finished a workout, sauna session, or just need to hydrate for your mental health, Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for those following a keto, low-carb, vegan, or paleo diet. And right now, Element is offering my listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. So get eight free packs, but you must go to drink element.com slash digest to get this offer. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash digest. Element also has a no questions asked refund policy. So if you try it and you just don't like it, it's not for you, you don't have to buy it. You can get your money back risk-free and you don't even have to send back the packs. You can just give them to a friend or family member or neighbor and then be on your way. So you really have nothing to lose. So again, just go to drinklmnt.com slash digest to get this amazing offer. So let's talk about Let's talk about bloating for a second because I feel like that is just like such a hot topic. Uh, Why are so many people bloated these days despite eating a quote clean diet, 
right? Yeah. So a lot of my listeners, they're already eating a pretty healthy, clean diet and they're like, what the heck's going on? I'm still bloated and I'm doing all of the things right. Yeah, this is a really, first of all, it's a great question. And it's a question that we should be asking just how you said it, where it's like, I'm eating everything right and I'm still bloated. Um, because bloating has to do with a lot more than just food. And I think it's associated with food because a lot of people will experience it after they eat. But just because something is after you eat does not mean that you're eating the wrong foods. And that, if you like just take that away alone, that's a huge kind of nugget right there. Um, but bloating has a bunch of different causes for it. And that's why I advocate so much to go get tested, talk to somebody who specializes in this, really understand where yours is coming from. Um, I think we probably talked about it last time, but the definition of bloating is really vague for people. And so I always want to get real clarity on that. Are we talking about bloating in terms of you eat food, you feel like your stomach is a little bit distended, and then it goes away, you know, within an hour or so after eating? That's just normal physiology. Food has to go somewhere, right? And it's going to expand the stomach as much as the volume of food you consumed, plus a little bit more because of the digestive process that creates fermentation and gases that are produced, right? A lot of people will come into me and say, well, no, I just feel like I have some excess around my midsection. And so we may be talking about abdominal adiposity there. So some abdominal fat around the stomach. Some people call bloating some water retention that they feel in their face or in their body. That's more edema. So when we're talking about bloating, we're talking about excess gas production or the feeling of distension, the pushing out of the stomach from intestinal causes is really what we want to focus on there. Um, but there's many, many causes and food is one of them because when we eat, you go in, you digest your food, the digestion process it allows us to break down food and that process alone creates some gas production because it is a chemical process. And then you have your microbes that are there that digest the fibers that we can't eat. And those guys definitely produce gases in the intestines. And so there's some fermentable carbohydrates that we have that will produce more gas than other foods. And the big factor here is that they've done studies that show when you do a CT scan on some people that report with bloating and you do the same scan on people who say, I'm not bloated, there's groups of people that have the same amount of gas in the people that don't report bloating as do report bloating. And so it may not be an absolute gas production issue. It may be that there's a visceral hypersensitivity to the gas that's there. And this is really, really common, but this is when there's a kink in that communication between the gut and the brain where the, the gut is sensing distension and discomfort when everything is actually very normal. And so it's, it's difficult to pick apart those pieces, but we have to because we don't want to be chasing down food when food is not the issue. It's this visceral hypersensitivity or the kink in communication between the gut and the brain. Okay, so let's just say that is the case. How do you fix that if someone has that uh, hypersensitivity? Yeah, and so if that's the case, and there's there's a bunch of other causes too, so we can go into yeah. 
the ones that are beyond food. But if it is that kink in communication, then we want to work on that gut brain connection. And so your gut and your brain are really intimately connected. They're connected through the vagus nerve, but they're also connected through the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access through hormones. Um, which is why when we're stressed, it can affect our guts a lot. They're connected through the gut microbiome because those microbes produce different substances that then can go and talk to the different organ systems, including our brain. Um, but when this system is off, it's sending these faulty signals back and forth, like I said. So in order to correct that, we have to focus on that gut-brain connection. There's a few modalities that we use right now that we know to be effective. One of the biggest ones I use in my practice is cognitive behavioral therapy for gastrointestinal-related conditions. We call it GICBT. And this is really effective because it's starting to identify what thoughts and behaviors are actually triggering and worsening the gut symptoms themselves. And a huge caveat here is we are not talking about, hey, this is all in your head, you're making it up. That's totally not the, the point that we're making here. All we're saying is that there is this kink in communication. For some reason, your gut is sending signals to the brain that something's really wrong when something's not wrong at all. And so we need to recalibrate that communication. And so in order to do that, identifying certain thought patterns, for instance, um, you know, I talk to people about this all the time, but say you report with excess gas and you feel really bloated. One of the things that we can do is say, what do you do when you feel bloated? Like, what's the first thought that comes to mind when you feel bloated? And people may say, um, when I feel bloated, I say, oh, not this again. Or I look in the mirror and I see how bloated I actually am. Or I start to touch my stomach to feel how bloated I actually am. Um, and, and people sometimes will do this all day long. So one of the key questions I ask is, how much of your day do you think about this bloating? And it's not uncommon to get the answer of 90% of the day I think about this. When I hear that, I know that this is a real factor that we have to focus in on because if we become obsessive around the symptom itself, it worsens the symptom itself because it sets off brain regions that are emotional regions, but also pain regions that say, whoa, something is really wrong. You know, we may be sick. We need to hyper focus on this to make sure that we don't die. The brain has a hard time differentiating what's actually harmful to us versus what's not harmful at all. And when, when it is a functional bloating or a functional GI concern, it's not harmful to your health. We're assuming that you've had the workup and we know that at this point, of course. Um, but just changing that thought pattern from, oh no, not this again, or you know, what clothes am I gonna wear? Or did I pack a baggy shirt if I'm on vacation? You know, I can't wear the tighter dress that I wanted to wear. If we can just change those thought patterns to something like a coping tool, for instance, you could change it to, uh, I don't feel that great right now, but it's not harmful to my health and I'm gonna go on with my day. That simple swap right there of just reassuring your brain, it's not going to cause me any harm. I'm going to go through my day right now, can actually reduce the stress response, reduce cortisol, reduce norepinephrine, epinephrine. And that stress response is likely contributing to the GI factors because those stress hormones can speed up or change motility patterns in the intestines leading to diarrhea, but for some people it can also lead to constipation, which can worsen bloating itself by just slowing down that GI tract. 
Um, so that's kind of how we use CBT. There's other things like gut directed hypnotherapy that work really, really well. Um, it's not like quacking like a duck or anything like those. You're really just taking th people through a relaxation technique to lower the stress response that's there. Um, and then we also have other tools in terms of really identifying all of the checking behavior patterns that people have and identifying each one of those and going through and seeing, you know, is this really improving your symptoms or is it worsening your symptoms? And most of the time we can prove that it's actually worsening symptoms and not improving. Wow. Yeah. So interesting because I do want to give some people hope that if they think that this is maybe the cause and they're like, okay, well, what do I do? How do I fix it? And so, um, I mean, obviously I can put all your contact information in uh, today's show notes so that they can contact you and kind of get this resolved. But um, what, what do you think about the feeling that food can actually be stuck? And I'm talking like stuck in your upper GI, almost like right below your ribs. So you feel like it's not even down towards your belly button. It's like, you just ate and now it's like stuck up there. What is happening? Yeah. So if it feels like food is like sitting in the stomach, is that what you're talking about? Just kind of like this, like it's not really moving. I feel like I'm still full and it's been two hours after eating. Like almost. Yeah. Like I, I cause I, I've spoken about this on my Instagram and I've actually experienced this to myself where you, you eat and you feel like you're your food is literally almost right below your breast. And you're like, man, it is stuck there. What What's happening? And maybe you start burping. What, have you ever experienced a patient that has experienced that? Yeah. And my, my guess is like, I would, I spent an hour with patients, so we would really dive into more specifics here. But the feeling of like things not passing through quickly or just kind of like sitting there um, can be something called dyspepsia. So dyspepsia is very common and usually will lead to burping afterwards and just like, oh, like, can this keep going through my system so I feel better, feel lighter afterwards too. Um, dyspepsia, dyspepsia is very, very common. And we do want to target motility when it comes to that um, because things are kind of just sitting there, but then can also start to go back up. So reflux is commonly associated with dyspepsia, but also just burping, indigestion, feeling like, oh, I don't feel good after a meal. Um, and that one we really want to look at, yeah, what foods are you eating? Stress is a big factor with dyspepsia because in order for normal motility patterns to happen in the upper and lower GI system, we need to be in a state of rest and digest, not in a state of fight or flight. And so we just did a video on this in my practice actually where when you look at the research, there's not a ton of research when it comes to like anxiety, stress and reflux, um, but it's definitely there. And when you address it, you can often see those symptoms get better. But dyspepsia is in the, that functional GI classification. And so we do see that overlap that's there. Now, eating too much food at once can cause dyspepsia as well. Eating foods that are really acidic or fatty foods that's going to slow gastric emptying can, can also exacerbate symptoms there too. Alcohol can cause dyspepsia. So there's a bunch of different factors, but looking at it from a holistic perspective and saying, which one fits this person, right? So it's going to be different if somebody comes in and they're 
overweight and they have some weight to lose, that increased abdominal fat can increase pressure on the stomach and cause some of those feelings versus somebody's normal weight. Then we're not worried about that. We're looking at other potential causes that are there. Okay. Now, um, I also wanted to point out that you did mention something about fatty foods. Now, when I was really sick and ill, um, I mean, I did tons of different research and there was so many different things that popped up, right? And uh, when you said fatty foods take longer to you know, digest and pass through, one of the things that I found it within my research is that going on a low-fat diet actually was really helpful for some people. And obviously we need fats, good healthy fats, but a lot of people have gone keto now, low-carb, high-fat, and perhaps, I'm not saying this is the cause, but perhaps the people trying that and they're not seeing any results because they're eating so much fat, even though it's good fat, it's just taking a long time for them to digest. So could that be a a problem or an issue? Absolutely. Yeah. So really high fat intake is going to slow gastric emptying and that can cause that same kind of dyspepsia feeling that that people have. It's so individualized, right? So that's why some people come to me and our main goal is you need to gain weight. Like that's your limiting factor for your overall health. And then I'm not going to put them on a super low fat diet versus somebody else comes in and they're 40 pounds overweight and their, you know, LDL cholesterol is high, ApoB is high. They would be a great candidate for a really low fat diet. Um, And so you want to just treat the person that comes in and see where they're at and what's going to benefit them. And it may change. Um, So, you know, people come in with gastroparesis, we put them on a low residue diet. Gastroparesis is when you have slowing of the emptying of food in your stomach. Yeah, We're going to put them on a diet that's going to be low residue, not super high in fat. um, But that diet should change once the gastroparesis resolves, um, especially if it's just an acute phase of it because that diet may help with their symptoms now, but may not be the best diet for longevity and general well-being. So that's like the therapeutic use of, of food. Not a lot of people know that tea bags are full of toxins and when heated, these toxins can easily leach into your drink. I am trying to educate myself and others more and more as studies and research continue to evolve. Not to mention the toxins and chemicals sprayed on the actual tea leaves and herbs commonly mixed into the toxic tea bags. And a lot of companies are now adding natural flavors to their teas. And we all know from my viral Instagram video that natural flavors are not natural at all. They're made in a lab and are added to products to make you more addicted to that product. Natural flavors, toxins, and chemicals are hijacking our taste buds and disrupting our endocrine system and gut health. That's why I appreciate Peak Tea. They triple toxin screen all their teas for purity, ensuring no mold, pesticides, heavy metals, or harmful chemicals are in their tea crystals. And yes, even though they're all certified organic, Peak Tea still takes the extra step to screen all their powders. Another thing I love is that their green teas, black teas, and herbal teas are in powder form, so no toxic tea bags are being heated. Each serving is individually packed, so you can easily pour one serving right into your cup, coffee mug, or blender. 
Their cold extraction technology gently extracts and preserves active compounds and phytonutrients from their organic ingredients, distilling them into their most bioavailable and maximally effective form. Their patent technology synthesizes the most bioactive isolates from whole food sources to deliver payloads of essential nutrients into your cells for enhanced absorption. And if you're looking for a coffee alternative, Peak Tea has a blend called Chaga Energy Elixir, which is 100% caffeine-free, yet still gives you energy without the jitters and can even provide a calmness at the same time. The adaptogenic properties of their wild-harvested chaga, burdock root, and North American ginseng support cellular rejuvenation. And like all their teas, this blend is organic and contains no natural flavors that, like I mentioned, surprisingly, many tea companies are adding to their products now. So be on the lookout for that, you guys. Another top seller from Peak is their ceremonial grade matcha powder. This one is actually quadruple toxin screened because matcha powder can be so heavily sprayed and it's a rare find to come across a good quality source free from chemicals. So there's zero preservatives, zero refined sugar or additives, and it contains EGCG known to help firm and brighten skin as well as L-theanine, which promotes calmness. And it gets even better, you guys, because Peak Tea offers a free return policy within 30 days. So if you try something and you're not happy with it, just send back what you didn't use for a refund. You guys know I have a deal for you as well. So if you go to peaklife.com slash digest, you can receive up to 15% off plus up to two free gifts. That's P-I-Q-U-E. L-I-F-E dot com slash digest to get a discount and some freebies. You guys have probably heard of Beekeepers Naturals. They are everywhere with their superfood honey, brain fuel, bee pollen, and propolis sprays. I have personally been taking their brain fuel and propolis immune throat spray for over a year. So when they wanted to become a sponsor of this podcast, I was quite honored and this couldn't have been a better match. And if you don't know about Beekeepers Naturals, let me quickly tell you that their propolis throat spray is literally something I use every single day and often multiple times a day. My husband and I both spray it at night and whenever we have a dry throat or tickle in our mouth. Now, I'm not sure if you knew, but honey isn't the only thing that bees make. They also produce a compound called propolis, which is literally a superfood. It has a special compound that acts as an antifungal, anti-inflammatory, and antimicrobial. One study found that when topical propolis was applied three times a day, it helped to heal cold sores and the researchers found the propolis cream not only reduced the amount of herpes virus present in a person's body, but also protected the body against future breakouts. Another 2021 review found that propolis may also help treat mouth and throat infections as well as dental cavities. And these are just a few reasons 
reasons why Beekeepers Naturals uses this natural aid in so many of their products and also includes it in their raw honey for a full spectrum superfood sweetener. The founder, Carly, actually created her products after experiencing reoccurring tonsillitis that worsened because her body couldn't tolerate antibiotics. Everything changed when she came down with a severe case while studying abroad in Italy. Desperate to avoid flying home for surgery, she wandered into an Italian pharmacy and found this stuff called propolis. After barely a week of taking the bee product, her tonsils had almost returned to normal. It was the first time in her life that something had worked for her condition. And that is what sparked her journey to create Beekeepers Naturals and all their superfood honey and propolis-based products. I highly suggest checking out their propolis spray for immune support, especially during these colder months, as well as all their other immune support products to naturally help your body fight off infections and keep them at bay. And you guys know I've got an amazing deal for all my listeners. If you just go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash digest, you'll get a great amazing discount. So again, go to beekeepersnaturals.com slash digest, and you will get an amazing discount for only my listeners. I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, I actually had a gastroparesis many, many years ago. That was like one of the big factors. So thankfully, oh, that was the worst. But, you know, just a testimony here that people can get over that hump and, and get better. Yeah. And again, like you said, don't think of these, quote, diets as a lifetime thing. Think of it as a season in your life that you have to do to heal and then get beyond and go back to living regularly. So, you know, just again, word of hope there. Now, going back to my original question, now, why are so many people bloated these days despite eating a clean diet? Now, we were talking about different factors like stress, how the mind works. What about, you know, bacteria infections, overtraining, you know, working out too much and eating right after you work out. That's huge. I'm just trying to think eating too fast, eating too often, like all these things could could play a role. Yeah. Yeah. You're spot on too. Those are all potential factors. And so I really view them as problems with the way we're living in some aspects where we're not living necessarily how our bodies are intended to function. Um, but we can adapt and we can change things and put things in place so that we can function well. Um, but being on the go in general is not conducive to normal digestion. So if you're eating in the car, you know, in a Tupperware as you're on the 405 in LA, like my commute, um, that's not going to be the place where you're going to fully digest your food. And like you said, if you are eating a huge meal and then doing an intense workout either right after or right before, again, that workout is great for you, but it does induce a stress response. And so your body is going to increase cortisol, it's going to increase norepinephrine, and we want all of that. But, you know, we want to make sure that we're pairing food when we should be pairing it and when we're ready just to actually accept the food and digest it properly. I think stress is an epidemic in this nation, whether we feel stressed or whether we don't feel stressed. I think that our bar for stress has risen so much that it's hard to feel where we really should be. 
Um, and there's things called like aerophagia, which is the oral swallowing of air that is a huge driver for bloating for some people. And yet I've never had one person that comes in and says, hey, I swallow air. It's an issue. It's almost always that we have to dig deeper and realize that in a form of stress for them, they're actually swallowing air as a coping mechanism and it's leading to bloating. Nobody's doing that intentionally. Um, it's a behavior adaptation that's pretty hard to catch. Sometimes you have to send people to a speech pathologist to start to catch where that's happening. Um, but there's, there's so many different facets. When you talked about like the bacterial component, we have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or intestinal methanogen overgrowth. And that can be the overproduction of gases in the intestines that's leading to that sensation of bloating. I think stress is a huge contributing factor to SIBO, especially because of how reoccurrent it can become, where you can get through it and then it comes back and get through it. Um, but also a big motility factor there. And motility in the GI system is partly regulated by your HPA axis. And so you know, especially people that come in there have an IBSD, let's see. So they have diarrhea predominant IBSD and they say, you know, I have urgency. Like I'll, I'm scared to go out in public because I don't know where the nearest bathroom is. And I'm always scanning to figure out like, where can I go to the bathroom? Am I safe here? Do I need to like look it up on my phone? And in those people, if they feel a bowel movement coming on, that triggers a stress response in their brain because they say, oh, am I going to have an accident? How quickly do I need to find the bathroom? Do I know where it is? They start looking around and scanning their environment. That whole thing that just happened there increases cortisol, norepinephrine, epinephrine. Those hormones go into the colon and they trigger more motility patterns so that it speeds up the movement in the colon, increasing urgency. So their actual reaction and behaviors to what just happened is worsening what they don't want to happen. And now they really have to go find a bathroom. So for something like that, we put in diaphragmatic breathing where, you know, I tell somebody, the first step is just to notice that those things are going on. Like you're saying, okay, I have a bowel sensation. The first thing we do is say, I'm safe. Like I'm totally fine here. Majority of the time, nothing bad happens when this sensation occurs. That right there will lower the stress response immediately. And then go right into diaphragmatic breathing where you're taking these big, big deep belly breaths. And that's going to lower the stress response further. So if you can switch your response to where's the bathroom? Oh my gosh, am I going to have an accident to this has been fine in the past, going to be fine now, and I'm going to breathe. You can actually totally divert from the urgency itself. And we see the same with, with bloating symptoms that can happen too. Um, so are yeah. you saying that stress is actually a contributor to SIBO? Yeah, I, I totally believe so. Yeah. In my practice, my clinical experience, it's, it's definitely one of the things. Is it this thing for every single human? No, I don't think so. Like there's some people that come in and they have post-infectious IBS where they got, you know, maybe Giardia when they went camping and they were by a lake or something. And then they develop SIBO afterwards. And the motility changes there are due to the infection itself changing motility patterns in the GI system that led to SIBO. What could happen after that is stress could potentiate symptoms though for sure because of that cycle that we have when you have a new symptom whether it's bloating gas diarrhea constipation muscle pain headaches like even it's outside of the geo tract when you have a new symptom that's not common to you 
it makes you concerned, which is a normal human response. We want to be like, what's going on? Like, this isn't me. Like, I don't like this. This doesn't feel good. That's automatically going to put you into a stress response of trying to figure out what is this issue that's going on here. And that stress response increases hypervigilance in the body. Then you start to scan other parts of your body. Do I have a fever? You know, is my foot okay? Maybe I have some knee pain, actually. I have some back pain, right? You just start to scan. Again, totally human response. We want to do that because we're trying to make sure, are we going to die or are we not going to die? That's really what your brain is doing. Um, however, when it is a functional bowel issue, we know that there is nothing dangerous that's happening in, in your body at that point. So that stress cycle that has started all it does is end up perpetuating the symptoms and they start getting worse. And when the symptoms get worse, then the anxiety, fear, and frustration get worse. And then when those symptoms get worse, the bloating, constipation, diarrhea get worse. And then we start, I call it the cyclone, right? Where it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's where we have to break it with some of these gut-directed behavioral therapies. Yeah, well, I I've definitely experienced that myself and it's just it's a double-edged sword. It's a catch-22 and I think we we actually talked about this in our our previous episode that um when you were on, but it's like you you have an, a, a bad experience with a food and then you don't want to eat that food again or maybe you are going to eat it again but you're so scared to and then you've already set yourself up for another bad experience with that food but it could have just been your mind. Now, let's just talk about maybe, maybe it actually is the food. Uh -huh. um, I want to talk about food combining because I've personally experienced and also come across tons of other people where they're like, I've had X food before and I was fine. I had Y food before and I was fine, but when I ate X and Y together, oh my gosh, it's the worst. So let's talk about food combining. Is that a real thing, first of all? And uh, what foods should we not combine and eat together? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to um, probably punt this one just because I'm very aware of food combining and I've read a little bit about it. I'm by no means an expert in it. And there's a reason why I haven't gone down the path is in when it comes to my clientele i don't see food combining being something that would be healthy for their psyche and so i actually don't even touch it with patients um there are specific foods which we can talk about but basically before i go there um when we just talked about like the fear of food i view the fear of food as something that we should be taking into consideration at a really really like very important level when it comes to GI concerns. Um, and it's in part to do with my personal history, but also in part to do with how many people that I have seen that come in with functional GI issues that end up developing disordered eating or eating disorders because of the functional GI issue or had the eating disorder before. And then, you know, they also have functional GI issues because there's a huge overlap there. Um, but it's something in my practice that I don't touch because I've seen it cause way more harm than good with patients. And so I've been able to be successful without going into food combining. And I feel like if I can do that, then there's no reason for me to go there. Um, I understand that, you know, some people feel like it's their last resort, but I just haven't had to use it as a tool in my toolbox um, because of 
that I don't want people obsessing about food at that level where it could potentially start to create these patterns where they're like, okay, I can only do this and this, and I can't do this. And if we're thinking about our food that much, I don't think we've really figured out the issue. So I think we should be able to heal somebody without being super restrictive like that. I will talk about highly fermentable foods with some of my patients and I'm, I'm screening everybody for like, what's your history with food? You know, have you ever had a super restrictive eating pattern? So I'm doing a full like psych intake when it comes to food itself. But if I don't suspect any restrictive eating patterns, and I may talk to somebody about those fermentable carbohydrates, so we call them high FODMAP foods. And these are foods that are high in fermentable carbohydrates, meaning that when you consume them, they can produce excess gas production in the intestines, which is totally normal. And in most people, that excess gas production doesn't bother them because they don't have that hypersensitivity to the expansion of gas in their intestines. In some people, especially in people with irritable bowel syndrome, that expansion of gas from the fermentation can cause real symptoms of like discomfort, pain, cramping, bloating, gas. Um, and in those people, sometimes a low FODMAP diet can be really helpful. I just take them through it for about six weeks and then we reintroduce each of the groups and we try to identify, okay, is it more the, you know, fructose containing or fructan containing foods or is it more like sorbitol or is it more, uh, you know, lactose So we're identifying which of those groups and then just keeping that one group out, reintroducing everything else for diversity. Okay. Well, I love that. And, you know, I really think that there is a, an extra step in w what you're t talking about as far as like the mind, right? Now, I, I do want to ask you though, because I know melons in particularly should not be eaten with a lot of other foods. Now, have you heard this or like watermelon, dairy, things like that? Yeah, I've briefly heard it in the food combining world. Um, it's just not something I practice. And and no, like, you know, like I said, I'm also not super well read on this topic, but just from a psychology standpoint, I work so closely with some GI psychs. Um, so there are psychologists who specialize in the gastrointestinal tract and, and food relationships where I really steer away from any of those hard and fast rules. But not to say that I'm right about everything because... Okay. I've learned that I'm definitely not right about everything. No, I mean, I, I think we all can learn and nobody knows everything, but I know that you are uh, well experienced in this field. Um, now you did mention something about eating disorders and how that is so prevalent. And why do you think that is? Like yeah. people that have IBS, you know? Yeah, there's a huge overlap with functional GI issues and eating disorders. Um, I think that there's a couple of reasons. I think that when you look at the predisposing factors and risk factors for irritable bowel syndrome, but the, all of the functional GI issues, those risk factors include a neurotic personality type or obsessive personality type. Um, they also include being female as a risk factor for them. And they include... Um, you know, trauma early in childhood or just trauma in general, as well as anxiety, depression, and, and mood disorders. And I don't even like to call them like that. You know, if we're human, you've experienced anxiety, depression, right? They're, they're part of the human experience. Um, but because there is such an overlap with mental health and GI issues, and there's a huge overlap in terms of eating disorders really stemming from a mental health place, then you're going to see that overlap be there. So that's just one of those factors. 
But the other thing, I just did a post on this recently, is the actual eating disorder, especially like, like let's talk about anorexia first, but anorexia nervosa is the second most deadly mental health condition that we have. It's only second to opioids. Um, which wow, is, that's insane. Yeah, second most deadly. So it's more deadly than anxiety, depression, PTSD, things that have a really high suicide rate. More than like alcoholism. It's the second most deadly. Like I can't even you know say that without reiterating it over and over again because it's a really staggering number. Um, but even more surprising is 22% of children and adolescents struggle with eating disorders. That's a huge number. It's about 9% of females over the course of their life, a little less than men. I think those numbers are actually way underestimated because I think a lot of people, including myself, never sought help for an eating disorder. So I don't think I was ever pulled into that. Um, but, you know, just in general, how how prevalent they are is really uh, nerve wracking. And I, I say this because the reason that we see a high mortality rate with something like anorexia is not just from the suicide that can be associated with it. It's actually physiological things that happen when we restrict food to that level. And so when you start to re restrict food to such a level, you see end organ damage of livers shutting down, kidneys shutting down, but the GI system starts to shut down as well. So I had a, a post on Instagram that it was like, you know, not eating enough food can cause constipation. And I said something like kind of cheeky, like if not a lot goes in, not a lot's going to come out. And I had these comments of people like, oh, duh, like that makes sense. Like tell us something we don't know. Like, why would you say that? And I was like, well, if you read the comment section, what I also put is it's not just a volume issue. So it's not just if you put a little bit in, a little bit's going to come out. It's also the issue with how low calorie affects all of your organ systems, but including your colon, where we see decreased motility that happens in the intestinal tract of people on really low caloric diets, especially with people with disordered eating patterns, where if your colon slows down to a level, you're going to increase bloating, you're going to increase constipation because fermentation can happen for a lot longer because things aren't moving through. Gastroparesis is a very common side effect of, of um, anorexia nervosa as well. And then it becomes a feed forward cycle for some of these people. And I was definitely in that camp where it's like, I can't eat more because now I don't feel good. I feel full. My appetite is lower. And like, you know, we need to fix this in order for me to be able to eat more. And now I know refeeding is so important because you have to get a little bit more uncomfortable. You've got to like kickstart the machine again. So you have to increase calories first and it may be uncomfortable, but in order to get that machine going, you need to increase calories to a level where your colon, your intestines, your stomach can start moving normally again. Because what you're saying is that your metabolism slows down. Mm -hmm. So when your metabolism slows down, because that's like a natural thing that your body is like, oh, I'm in starvation mode. I need to keep, you know, food in me longer and uh, utilize everything. So once the metabolism slows down, it starts to hold on to nutrients. Thus, things can ferment because they're in you longer. That's what you're saying, correct? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, your machine is shutting down when we see, you know, I've seen patients that come in, their liver enzymes are high. So they're going through phases where the cells in the liver are dying, causing elevated liver enzymes. So your liver is starting to shut down. You can see kidneys start to shut down. Um, and that's why the mortality of anorexia is something we need to talk about more because it's way more than just an aesthetic, you know, mental health condition. It's a real physical issue too that that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and I feel like social media and just like media in general is not helping. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, and what about the other side of an eating disorder? Because you were saying, you know. A lot of women do have this, not to say that men don't. I've seen men, you know, admit to that as well. And, um, but what about bulimia and overeating and the whole binge thing, which I feel like, I mean, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. This is just my opinion. But now with the whole like body positivity movement, I think that's great. But when they're glorifying being, you know, 400 pounds obese, that's not healthy either. And that is causing issues, obviously, on the other end of the spectrum. Um, And that's probably causing digestive issues too, because, so can you elaborate on that? Yeah. And there's a, there's a few things, but let's start with the binge binge eating where um, usually binging is a is can be a symptom of restricting throughout the day. So whenever I see binging, I want to say, you know, do you have periods of restricting where you're trying to offset the binging? And um, it's the analogy of don't think of a pink elephant. So I'll try to tie that in. But when people go through a binging episode, there's usually a lot of shame and guilt that's associated with it. And especially if they're trying to lose weight the next day, they may say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to eat any of it. I'm not going to eat the cookies. I'm not going to touch the candy. I'm going to do all this. Then they can over restrict their diet. And that's okay. Don't think about the sweet. Don't think about the white elephant. You know, don't think about any of it. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm cutting it out completely. But we know what happens to our mind when we do that is that's all we can think about because we've put it into the place where it's no, no. It's like, we don't do that anymore. It's completely out. It's black and white. And so then we think about it all day long and then we restrict ourselves and then we're not eating enough calories throughout the day. And so then when we get home and we're stressed and, you know, we're, we're done with school or work or whatever it is, then we feel like we don't have control and we binge at that point. Um, in high school, I remember doing this where it was like, I would get so mad at myself for binging that the next morning I'd say, I'm not eating any of it. I wouldn't eat lunch. You know, maybe I have like a few celery sticks or whatever. And then by the time I got home after lacrosse practice, I was famished and I get out the ice cream and the Oreos. And then I would feel sick after like this, like binging session. And, um, that binging session is going to really increase the volume that's in the stomach. Right. So you're just going to feel actually full and uncomfortable that's there. Some people will then go on to purge and then purging has its own issues on the GI tract, especially the esophagus causing potential, you know, dysplasia or changes in the esophageal lining um, and definitely gastritis or esophagitis or potential causes, meaning inflammation of that tissue. Um, but then we also will have really disordered eating patterns throughout that day. So you can see, I went from, you know, a huge meal, a lot of volume till the next day where it was like basically nothing, skipping meals, small volume. 
And in order to have like good GI movement, you need regular meals, regularly spaced throughout the day that are consistent. Your body wants to know, I ate dinner, but hey, I'm gonna eat breakfast the next day too. And this is due to something called the gastrocolic reflex that we have in our body. When we eat food, there's food in the stomach, gastro, and that food in the stomach triggers the colon to start moving. So when you eat, it actually is telling your colon, hey, have a bowel movement or get things moving down there because there's more food coming from up above. So they, they communicate in this way so that things don't get stuck and you don't have a pile up that's happening. But when you binge and restrict, you're having large foods amount that are there at once, which is going to cause all the symptoms of dyspepsia, bloating, you know, not feeling good. Um, but then you go on to restricting and you don't have food in your stomach for several hours or throughout the day. That gastrocolic reflex isn't happening anymore. And you may feel like you're bloated and constipated because stuff hasn't moved all day long because you never had food in the stomach to trigger that colon to, to move and get rid of things. This becomes one of those cyclones that starts feeding upon itself and things get worse and worse and can definitely develop into these functional GI issues from, you know, the bulimia side of things as well. Um, and then there's all things in between, right? Like I think everybody who's experienced some form of disordered eating patterns are like, yeah, that resonates, but I didn't do that. You know, people will develop their own patterns, but can definitely have a huge effect on the GI system. I have been a long consumer of colostrum for years and have known the benefits it holds for our health. It's been clinically shown to help guard against inflammation and everyday toxins and pollutants. Colostrum intake has also been linked to fewer respiratory tract and GI infections in children and adults. In fact, there are over 5,000 published studies documenting the benefits of colostrum and its ability to optimize health from when we are born all the way through to our elder years. It's even been proven to be three times more effective than the flu vaccine. Armor colostrum is different from others on the market, and it's something I started taking back in March 2023, long before all the hype. They use a proprietary cold chain biopotent technology that distills over 200 functional nutrients, guaranteeing the highest bioactive integrity and bioavailability. Another thing I personally love about this company is that they only extract and use the surplus colostrum from grass-fed, pasture-raised happy cows that are no longer needing it to supply their young. So you know you're not taking away from animals that need it. Only the surplus colostrum is used. And Armora makes sure they are getting only the best from healthy USA cows from family farms. Armora has three flavors, orange, watermelon, and unflavored, which is my personal favorite because the unflavored has no natural flavors and just one single ingredient. And Armora is the only colostrum on the market that's casein-free, which is the protein most people with a dairy allergy react to. And for those that do not have a true allergy, but rather have a dairy intolerance, the culprit is usually not the dairy itself, but rather the way that it's processed. All commercial dairy utilizes high heat and aggressive processing for pasteurization and sterilization. Unfortunately, this changes the structural shape of the proteins and destroys the omega fat molecules. 
rendering them unrecognizable to the body as a food. This is what triggers the immune system inappropriately leading to intolerance symptoms like digestive complaints, rashes, and inflammation. However, Armra's innovative cold chain biopotent technology distills colostrum's over 200 functional nutrients without the use of high temperatures, guaranteeing the highest bioactive integrity and bioavailability. As a result, Arma is actually anti-inflammatory and often well-tolerated by consumers who typically would have dairy intolerance otherwise. The cool thing is that if you purchase the stick packs specifically and are not 100% satisfied, you can return the product within 30 days of purchase and receive a refund. So if you haven't tried Armour Colostrum but have always wondered, now's your chance without any risk if you get the stick packs. Or perhaps you already are a user and lover like myself and prefer their canisters, you can still get a discount when using my code. Just go to tryarmra.com and use code digest to receive a special discount for my podcast listeners. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com and use code digest on either their stick packs or canisters to receive a discount. Again, that's tryarmra.com and use code digest. Yeah. Well, essentially you're just confusing your body basically because it's like, okay, wait a minute. I I haven't eaten. Should I hold on to the food? Oh wait, I ate too much. And then there's that cycle, like you said. And so often, like how many times do you hear of people and they're like, I binged on Oreos or I don't know, you know, whatever, uh, some food. And you never, you never hear someone say, oh, I binged on grass-fed meat and, and vegetables and like foods that are really nourishing, right? It's always the candy, the chips or the whatever you want to call it, which are full of chemicals, which can't be good for your body. So not only are people binging on, you know, just overeating in general, but they choose the least good for you foods full of chemicals and then you're not getting any of the nutrients that your body truly needs. So that's just like a double-edged sword right there. Yeah. And it's also because of that, um, that psychological effect that we have when we say, I can't eat it. You know, this is off limits for me. I can't have the Oreo. I can't have the bread. I can't have the cookie. We want it that much more. You know, if you're a teenager, you probably have known that your parents say you can't do something like you want to do it that much more. And um, and so sometimes actually allowing some of those foods into your diet, like I'm a huge proponent of like eat the sweets when you want it, because if you don't label that as off limits, then you're not going to have these episodes where you're like, I can't stop eating it because it was never off limits in the first place. It's just in moderation, you know, just to say like, I'm not going to, you know, eat a, a bag of chips at once, but I'm going to allow myself to have one when I want something salty and crunchy because uh, then I totally. will restrict it later on. Yeah. Well, and I even get comments on Instagram or questions and they're like, how do you not eat all of the things that you make or like, cause I'll make brownies and cookies and like all these things. And I'm just like, I will make like 
sometimes two to three recipes a day and I don't want it. Like this is what I do for a living. So I try to explain to them like I, I'm making desserts all the time. Like I don't crave it because I'm constantly tasting. I'm constantly like I want like a burger or like, you know, something. I don't want to say like not that the things that I make are like not nourishing, but I want something like more savory or whatever. So it kind of goes into that same concept where it's like, I don't really crave it. I like it, but I'm not wanting to eat the entire pan of brownies. Um, You know, and it's, I hear it all the time just with like people that work in coffee shops. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't stand coffee. I'm around it all the time, you know? Uh, so same concept. Yeah. And I want to, I want to jump in there too, because it's, it's such a good point and I didn't really touch on it. It's like, I'll, I'll keep using myself as an example. Cause I know, I know it well, but you know, if I had gone through that episode of binging after school and then the next day I woke up and had like a really high protein breakfast. And then at lunch I had, you know, like a grass fed, you know, beef patty and like veggies and, you know, like a really good balanced lunch. I wouldn't have gone home and been famished and had to do all of that, right? Like it it was also not to do with, yeah, I was like saying, I can't eat any of these. So taking them off the limit and saying, I have to totally restrict. But it was also just a lack of, you know, good, healthy protein and fiber and veggies throughout the day where I was literally starving myself. And then when, when you're in that place, you're just really hungry at a certain point and you feel like you don't have as much willpower. So I think that's a great point. We need to be making sure we're, we're really feeding ourselves throughout the day. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, women too, when they're in their cycles, that they're fluctuating and like you need certain things at certain times of the month. And so it's just kind of keep that, you know, in mind, um, not to go like kind of off track here, but okay. So I, I do have so many other questions and I feel like we've, we haven't even touched on them yet, but I do want to ask a little bit about, again, going back to the initial question about bloating. Now, do you think a hormonal imbalance could be a cause of bloating or birth control, like hormonal birth control, not birth control, but hormonal birth control specifically? Could that play as a factor into disrupting our our gut microbiome and then ultimately our our gut, right? And and bloating. Yeah, yeah. I haven't dived deep into birth control when it comes to the gut microbiome, so I won't speak on that. Um, but in terms of hormones and bloating in general, there's definitely a link. And most women will kind of know this inherently. Um, but you can definitely see GI issues with birth control in some women too. And it's for kind of a similar reason, but in terms of your hormones, I don't, I don't necessarily like to call it an imbalance, but the the most common thing that you see is that in the luteal phase, which is the later part of your cycle. So you have your follicular phase um, in the beginning, and that's going to be the first day of your period to ovulation. Ovulation is when the egg is released. And then you have your luteal phase that follows that. And luteal phase goes all the way up to right before your period starts again. And that luteal phase, what happens is progesterone starts to rise post-ovulation in order to prepare your body for implantation and pregnancy. So to maintain a pregnancy, you need high progesterone levels. Um, And we want that to happen. 
However, progesterone slows down the gastrointestinal tract is just part of its physiology, unfortunately, which can cause constipation, bloating, can even contribute to reflux as well. Um, but those high progesterone levels can definitely be a factor in GI issues, um, but we don't want to change them. We want high progesterone in the luteal phase. And so I tell women, we just need to adjust for this. And if you're noticing that you're feeling more constipated in the, the last part of your cycle, we can add more fiber, more water and magnesium preventatively before you get to a place where you're super bloated or constipated. And that can help things move through a little bit faster. Um, was there another hormonal imbalance you were thinking of besides that one? I mean, I was just thinking more, more so of just of like birth control and how so many women have even, you know, in the past have had birth control and then obviously their hormones are disrupted. So just in general, you know, um, now I, I do want to go back in the rapid fire questions. I had asked about body composition and, you know, weight and BMI. Now, um, why is body composition the main focus on optimal health and why should we look at that versus weight and BMI? And yes. what is body composition? Why, why don't you start with that? Sure, sure. So let's start with what's BMI. So BMI is just a ratio of your height to weight. So that's what we're taking into consideration with BMI, body mass index. Um, body composition, on the other hand, is looking at how much of your body is made up of fat versus how much is made up of lean body mass in terms of muscle mass. We're looking at its composition versus just if I, you get on the scale, how much do you weigh in relation to how tall you are? So just a, an example that I love to use here is, um, you know, a football player. So the, the football player I usually use is Gronkowski. And I don't even know if he's still playing because I've been using it for years. So let's just say football player in general. But some of these football players are like 6'6", 265 pounds, but they're so much muscle in there, right? So like they're really, really muscular. If they took off their shirt, you wouldn't be like, oh, he's overweight. You'd say, wow, he's in great shape. But if you put him on a scale, he would measure his BMI as being obese a lot of the time. And so that's an example where that's not a useful measure for somebody who is, um, you know, way adequately muscled and, um, and a really tall person. The opposite can be true. You can put a woman who's thin on a scale, her BMI is 19, everything looks good. Your conventional doctor would say no issues. And then you do a body composition and you see really low muscle mass or high fat mass. Um, so I wanna go over a couple of things when we talk about this. We're gonna talk about somebody who is normal weight obesity. That's one term, normal weight obesity high body fat obesity in general, and then low muscle mass is the other one that we really want to cover. And then low body fat as well on the other side. And so for high body fat obesity, this is where you see somebody who's overweight, but also has a high body fat percentage. And we know, you know, that that's associated with increased risk for heart disease, type two diabetes, even cancers like kidney cancer, endometrial, colon cancer, prostate cancer, gallbladder, breast cancer have all been associated with being overweight and high body fat obesity, as well as early mortality death. So that one's kind of a given, like we've understood that pretty well. But then you have normal weight obesity. So these are people that have a totally normal BMI, but when you do a body composition test, which we do DEXAs in our practice, 
um, we see that their body fat percentage is higher than it should be despite being a normal body weight. And this alone is associated with higher prevalence of cardiometabolic dysregulation, metabolic syndrome, and other cardiovascular risk factors. Um, in women, normal weight obesity is independently associated with the risk for cardiovascular disease, even despite the, the weight itself, so just the added fat mass that's there. No, I've heard that term. Um, have you ever heard the term skinny fat? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> is that kind of the same? That's going to be the same thing as thing? normal weight obesity. Um, sometimes you'll see skinny fat that's even people that are underweight, though, and have a high body fat percentage. So that, that's another possibility there. Um, and usually we'll see somebody who's low muscle mass with that group as well. But you can also be adequately muscled and just too high of body fat. That's there. Um and so with the low muscle mass, so the more muscle mass you have, the lower your risk of death and mortality. That's like bottom line, which is incredible. And it's incredible yeah. that your doctor is like not measuring this because that's a huge statement right there. Um, so low muscle mass, higher risk for mo mortality, higher risk for all cause mortality with low muscle mass. Um, you see it more in people with a higher BMI. So if you are, you know, overweight and under muscled, that's much more dangerous than a normal weight and under muscled. That's, that's one of the things people over the age of 65 who have low muscle mass increase their all cause mortality by 56% over the age of 65. Um, a really common example I'll see is, you know, a woman comes in, their BMI is 19, which is totally normal for a woman. But then when we measure her muscle mass, I do a calculation called ALMI. It's appendicularly mass index. And what that means is it's looking at the muscle that you have in your arms and legs alone. It's taking out your trunk because in your trunk, you also have like kidney, liver, spleen, like some other things that aren't muscles. So it just takes out some of that um, kind of guessing area of what's actually going on there. But then we, we look at how much muscle is in the arms and legs and we divide it by their, uh, their height. So we're getting something similar to a BMI, but just for muscle mass. And their ALMI for BMI of 19 could be like 5.5. For women, that's really low. So you're looking at, you're in like the 10th percentile for women if you're 30 years old. So, um, which means that 90% of women who are 30 have more muscle mass than you do. And in those women, I'm really concerned about what's your bone density looking like? Because you're not having a ton of muscle mass on you to stimulate um, new bone growth and just the bone cycling that happens to maintain healthy bones. You had mentioned DEXA scan that you do that yeah. at your practice. Now, I know that measures bone density, but um, to my understanding, that's all it measures. Does it measure fat or other other things? Like Yeah, great question. No, DEXA scans also measure body composition. Unfortunately, when I send somebody for a DEXA where I have to write the actual order, it, it requires a doctor's um, order. They won't usually measure body composition in the hospital settings with those, but those machines have the capability of doing it. Usually the, the, they're just not trained on how to get the numbers or they don't have the outputs set up, but those machines definitely do it. So unfortunately, most of the time I'm sending people for a DEXA scan in the hospital to look at their bone 
composition because we need to get it so that it is, um, they're looking at different parts of the body and the skeletal system in order to diagnose osteoporosis and osteopenia. When you go to something that is not requiring a doctor's order, there's a bunch of places that offer DEXA scans for body composition now. And you can just walk in, you pay, they're like between like 40 and a hundred bucks typically. And those will measure your body composition. It's the same exact machine though. So it's unfortunate that they won't do, some places will. I have some hospitals that I know will do both of them. Um, but in the ones that you can just walk in with, they usually won't give you a breakdown of your bone density for like the lumbar, for the hip, like they won't break it down for the specific skeletal parts that you need to diagnose osteoporosis and osteopenia with. So sometimes we do have to use both of them, which is uh, So you have to typically go to these walk-in clinics and then also a, a hospital basically. Yeah. And there are a handful of hospitals that will do both of them, which that's like, you know, amazing. They usually won't um, put the body comp through insurance, but they can put the regular DEXA bone mineral density through insurance. Um, yeah. Our health system is frustrating. sometimes. It's very frustrating, but it is good to know that there are alternative clinics and facilities that you don't need insurance. You can just walk in and test yourself because I feel like so many people are in in that boat, uh, myself included, because personally, I, I just get frustrated with doctors and it's like, you know, I have health insurance, but only for acute things. And, you know, uh, hopefully I never have to use that, but, you know, uh, I, I definitely don't want to be in a car accident, but just in case, right? But for all these other things, I prefer to just pay out of pocket, unfortunately, because our healthcare system, I mean, not to go on a, ta a tangent here, but it's, they're not really doing any kind of preventative care or looking in um, what they really need to look into. They're just giving you pills and they're just giving you a Band-Aid for whatever symptoms. They're not looking at how to um, reverse things or prevent. Um, and that's something that I love that you do too, is you, you do preventative medicine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what excites me too, um, is we have the ability to prevent so many of these chronic diseases, um, heart disease, we can prevent, you know, diabetes for a large part, we can prevent, we can prevent so many, there's some that we can't prevent yet. We just don't have the knowledge, but for the ones that we do, um, I like using all the tools that we have. And I wanted to make a quick aside with the DEXA because we've talked so much about eating disorders and, you know, um, disordered eating patterns. I don't do DEXAs for some people because if they're struggling, especially with body dysmorphia or eating disorders, like that would not be something that would be helpful likely for that population because uh, it could be really triggering to see numbers that come up. And so make sure, you know, you're talking to somebody about it to see if it's a good fit for you. The last thing we want to do is make things worse and not better. Now you're talking about numbers as far as body composition or the bone density? Because I feel like um, bone density would be... Yeah, bone beneficial. density is actually really beneficial for people struggling with eating disorder because it's very common to see osteoporosis or osteopenia with disordered eating. Um, and just being underweight in general, but now I'm just talking about the body composition numbers. So body, like if you looked at your body fat or, you know, your muscle mass, 
depends on the person, but can be really triggering if there's especially any body dysmorphia that's there or, um, but really any eating disorder at all could, could potentially be a trigger to make things worse and not better. Right. No, that's a really good point. But, um, but for, for bone density, maybe that is something that they should look into. 100%. Yeah. So I send, um, especially women that are underweight, even when they don't have an eating disorder, you know, maybe their, their BMI is 18, um, but it's been lower in the past and low, you know, muscle mass is suspected just by looking at them. Then I'm going to do a bone density scan on them because if we can catch osteopenia early, then we can really change things and make sure that we're putting on, um, bone density and, and halting it or reversing it. Okay. Now, what about supplements? Are there any supplements that people can start taking now for their bones? And what which ones do you take for longevity? Yeah. So for your bones with supplements, you know, vitamin D is an important one. Um, it's in vitamin D and vitamin K2 can be important as well. I test those. So I want to see like where you're at. Because if you have a normal vitamin D, then taking more doesn't get you any bonus. Um, calcium can usually be taken in the food at an adequate amount. Sometimes we'll put somebody on a calcium supplement as well as magnesium and the other minerals needed for bone health too. Um, also really depends on your history of like things like kidney stones may change that recommendation. For me, when it comes to longevity, I currently am taking two supplements. Uh, actually, no, I would say four if I count those other two. So the ones that I take are, I took a fish oil supplement. And the reason I take that is if you measure your omega-3 index, which was one of the tests that I like to do, it looks at how much of the cells are made up of omega-3s versus other fatty acids. And if you have an omega-6 index less than 4%, which the average American is between 4 and 5%, you see a much higher risk for coronary heart disease in those that have a low omega-3 index. If you increase your omega-3 index above an eight, you see an 80% reduced risk for acute coronary syndrome, which is reduced blood flow to the heart like a heart attack compared to those who have an omega-3 index less than 4%. There's also, you know, studies that show that omega-3s can help reduce triglyceride levels. They can help reduce platelet aggregation, which is like the sticking of things, like um, clotting of blood. Um, Inflammatory markers can reduce as well. So I think fish oil is one that has great research on it and it's definitely one that I take personally. I have pretty significant family history of heart disease too. The other one I take is a really bioavailable curcumin. So it's one of the active ingredients in turmeric. Um, turmeric and curcumin by themselves have really, really poor bioavailability. So you need something called a drug delivery system that helps your body to absorb it and actually get the benefits from it. But the reason that I take it is there's been a couple of studies that are small. So it's like, this isn't like a home run supplement that we know for sure is going to create big changes, but it's enough for me, because I have a family history of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And the study looked at consuming 180 milligrams per day of curcumin. And what they saw was that in patients who had mild cognitive impairment, so already kind of starting to see changes in cognition, when they received the curcumin supplements, they it showed anti-inflammatory, anti-amyloid effects in the brain, but improved cognitive function in those individuals as well. 
And so even though the studies are small, I don't see any risk for it. And for me, again, with family history, it's one of the things that I've decided to put on my stack. Um, and then the other two are going to be creatine and whey protein, uh, which are the ones that I didn't really consider as supplements, but definitely technically are. And I do those because I want to gain some muscle in the next couple of years. Awesome. And I, I also want to point out with the curcumin and turmeric, um, you do need the black pepper, correct, to, to facilitate that? Yeah, great question, actually. So there's been studies and black pepper does seem to increase the absorption of curcumin. So it's one possible way to increase that bioavailability. But now we have things that are a little bit more advanced called those drug delivery systems. And so you can consider black pepper as a drug delivery system in some way where it increased the bioavailability of the curcumin and the turmeric. So your body can actually take it up from the stomach into circulation. But now companies have shown that if you go in and you actually create like a drug delivery system that's um, changing the actual molecule so it becomes more absorbable, you don't need the black pepper anymore. It's doing something similar, but it's actually when you compare them head to head is much more effective at increasing bioavailability. Um, And so it's like multiple times more available than previous versions of curcumin that were on the market. So the one that's the most bioavailable that I'm aware of right now is one that's called Curcurouge. So uh, Integrative Therapeutics, I think, thinks that. I don't know if you care about brands. Um, but there was ones in the past called Mariva, and they compared Mariva to Curcurouge, and Curcurouge is much more bioavailable than that and, and more bioavailable than the pepper combination with the curcumin as well. Wow, so interesting. I'm telling you, like the the industry is just getting so advanced, and as much as we hate it, we love it as well. So, oh yeah. man, well, I feel like man, we have already like just passed our time. But I do want to ask you, where can people find you uh, online on social media, and if they want to seek you for help or get more information about what you do. Yeah, on social, my Instagram is at dr.maryparty. Um, my practices social is at modern med. There's no E in modern, so M O D R N M E D. And then website is modernmed.com as well. Um, I put out blogs and videos and reels as much as I can, nowhere near the amount of content that you put out. I'm always inspired. I'm like, how did she do this? Um, but I have a few courses out there too. So I have a course actually on supplements, which is why I know all about all these drug delivery systems with curcumin. Um, and I go in and I actually debunk some supplements and then I, you know, talk about like the ones that have great research. And so that's hosted by one commune or commune is the name of the company. Um, and they're on our website as well. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure that we put all those links in today's show notes so that people can easily access them. So go and check them out there. Again, thank you so much, Mary, for coming on today. Uh, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. You're always welcome back. Thank you, Bethany. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Mike Fry. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. 
See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first.